Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their hellhound roast, witch's brew, devil's night roast, or sinful delight, order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. J.D. Lifshitz and Raphael Margules are the founders and executives of Boulder Light Pictures, a horror-centric production house in Los Angeles. Under Boulder Light, J.D. and Rafi have put out over 15 movies, including Becky, Pledge, Contracted, Dementia, and most recently, The Vigil. When asked, who is the next Blumhouse? Jason Blum, without question, said Boulder Light Pictures. Between their shrewd emphasis on economics, their eye for bold talent, and their recently launched international sales arm, JD and Rafi are forces to be reckoned with. And it seems like they're just getting started. In this interview, we talked about their filmography, the launch of Boulder Light, and strategies for aspiring producers on this very special episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now, without further ado, here are JD Lifshitz and Rafael Margules of Boulder Light Pictures. All right, Rafi and JD of Boulder Light Pictures. How are you guys doing? Great, thank God. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. I, uh, you know, big, uh, big admirer of your movies and everything you guys have built as a company. And I guess to start us off, I feel like something that's very topically relevant right now is how filmmakers are dealing in the age of COVID. I mean, the as the vaccine is rolling through, things are opening up a little bit more. But um, it seems like you guys have weathered the COVID storm relatively well. So I'm curious as to what it's been like for you guys to make movies and release movies in the era of COVID. And also, what do you think the immediate future holds for filmmakers? Well, Rafi, do you want to go or should I? Okay. Uh, well, you know, thank God we were, we were very fortunate. We, we had a really great 2019 where we, where we um, you know, had uh, uh, just a busy year. And 2020, we saw the release of four movies, essentially, um, all in different ways. Uh, our film, The Vigil, uh, had a pretty broad theatrical release internationally. Uh, and and, and um, Becky, which is our, 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 uh, our action film, uh, actually made uh, a pretty incredible amount of money just playing drive-ins. We were covered by the Wall Street Journal and by Forbes. Um, and that was something that was just a really happy accident of the pandemic. I mean, it, it I'd say it made more money than it probably would have in traditional theaters Whoa. because of the drive-in situation. Yes, you know, Us and The Wretched and uh, Relic and The Rental were a couple of movies that really benefited from that, you know, from that experience. And um, we really, I think we had the highest per theater average of the summer. Wow. Um, uh, besides maybe like, uh, I don't, I don't maybe the Russell Crowe movie, Unhinged beat us. I don't remember that. Uh, if that if that beat us, but but besides that, I think we have the and maybe Tenet. Obviously, I don't know if Tenet. I don't know if Tenet came, technically came out at the tail end of the summer. But um, but in fact, Forbes ran an article that if Unhinged and Tenet keep pushing, then 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 Becky and the Ratchet will be the only two hits of the summer. But uh, you know, so so Becky did really well because of the push. You know, we were upset because we had um, our movie The Vigil was at South by, uh, and thankfully it wasn't the world premiere. It was the it was just the North American premiere. Um, but, but that ultimately had to be canceled and that was, that was a bummer. And Becky was supposed to be at Tribeca, um, which is the festival I've wanted to go to for years. Um, but you know, all things considered, both films had deals when they were supposed to play at those festivals. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were more for like, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of petty, not petty, but just like the opportunity to have fun and watch them with an audience. Right. Uh, then it was about, you know, the actual business side of things. So, you know, the fact is, is as, as much of a bummer as it may feel like in the moment not to get to go to the festivals. Um, thank God, if you've got your health and a roof over your head and, 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 and all the essentials, everything else is just gravy. And we were, you know, really grateful that we had so many films come out and, and really got, you know, a, the reactions were really quite, you know, awesome. And, and, um, 
you know, it, it, that that really was wonderful. We only did one, uh, if you could call it production, we did reshoots sort of on a film called Wild Indian mm-hmm. that we had a chance uh, a couple months ago. Um, and that um, and that and that was done during the pandemic. But besides that, we're about to start our first production since the pandemic started, doubling in May June time. Um, uh, which you know, because again, we we uh, we didn't have anything get shut down, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we actually had we actually had a movie that we can't really speak about what it is yet. But we had a movie that was slated to go in November uh, in California, and we were all ready to go. COVID protocols, the whole thing, um, fully prepped. And then our, our our lead actress is on a very big show that ended up moving up their schedule. And instead of recasting the role, we decided to push production to summer of this year. Um, so it, it was interesting to, to see how a COVID movie was going to come along. We were going to create a COVID bubble in Northern California. So basically, like a lot of our crew and cast would have come up from L.A. and San Francisco. We would have it would have sort of been a, a camp that you couldn't leave. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely wise. But uh, it, it, it ultimately, no no production got shut down because of COVID. Um, so that that was again, I'm very grateful for that. That's great. Yeah, that's a really good place to be in. So I'm always fascinated with with studios like you guys and with Blumhouse. I'm always fascinated at the overall studio model, and obviously the the model by which you make movies probably obviously iterates the more movies that you make. But have you got, I mean, you guys have been in business for a while, a lot of movies under your belt. Is there kind of a model that you guys abide by? You know, I mean, Blumhouse is obviously typically one location and, you know, reliable director, one or two big stars, but they, they don't do trailer. Um, they don't have the stars and trailers and they cut costs where they can and they keep it under budget. You know, is there any sort of model that you guys attempt to stick to that you, that most your productions fall into? We, you know, it's funny. One of the things that we learned since starting out is that modeling can be dangerous. I mean, we do have, obviously, in the sense of like every project, with some exceptions, tends to be sort of informed by the market. Right. But ultimately, um, you know, we don't, we look at every project as an island, um, unless it's a part of a slate, which is kind of a different story. But we tend to look at every project like an island because you never know what the ceiling will be for the project. So, you know, mm. For example, we have a film that we just set up with a very large studio that we can't mention yet um, that is being, you know, that is probably being made for, um, uh, you know, that that we didn't think necessarily when we became involved in the project, we'd be making it at the level that we're making it for. But because we didn't box ourselves in, we allowed ourselves the opportunity for that opportunity to happen, right? Mm. So I think that sometimes people come in, you know, it's funny with the vigil, um, uh, just to use that as an example, when the script was sent to us, uh, the manager's a dear friend and comedian Tino was like, I have a project that only you guys should do. And normally that means everyone else has passed on it. But, <laughs> but in this case, it was a Jewish horror movie. And, um, and I read the script and I said, this is pretty good. Uh, is he open to notes? And he was. And, and we brought in Keith and, and he was just a, a rock star at, at, at development, at developing the idea out and, and fleshing the script out. And basically, you know, their pitch to us was we can make this movie for $200,000 in Colorado in a town. Um, and I remember calling Antonio, I believe, and saying, uh, I don't want to make a $200,000 Fantastic Fest uh, calling card. I say this is a big fan of the Fantastic Fest. Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to make a $200,000 Fantastic Fest lineup, you know, uh, a Fantastic Fest calling card. I want to make a $700,000 kit uh, uh, that, that can go out broadly. Um, and, uh, and, and Keith uh, and his manager were like, okay. And so we actually scaled up. The script and the movie from what it was, we, we reset it in, in Brooklyn, which which everyone felt was more authentic. And, oh, yeah. and we decided, like, let's spend more money. Um, you know, again, that's not seven hundred thousand dollars is ultimately not a lot of money, but but it's just the idea of that's what that movie needed. That movie needed, you know, you know, that roughly that amount of money uh, to tell the story that we wanted to tell, you know, because you never want and, and obviously even Becky, which was, you know, sub five million. Um, but that was a movie that had, uh, you know, a, mo- a movie star, a television star. Yeah. To, um, you know, any, and even this big studio movie where the, where the budget is, you know, many multiples of, of what we're talking about. Um, even on that movie, it's a period piece. It's a big, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's got, it's got a huge set and, and a movie and also starring, you know, any movie that we do, we never want it to feel like it's budget, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, and that's something where, um, we're, we're going to kill ourselves to make the best thing possible, regardless of the amount of money we have to spend. Um, but you never want to say, I need to spend 
you know, uh, I, I will only make, you know, uh, haunted house movies for $2 million because A, you're not really going to make very exciting things that way. Right. And B, you're going to kind of box yourself into a, a prison. And I will say to Jason Blum's credit, uh, you know, we're big Jason Blum fans. And, and uh, uh, I, I think one of the things Jason's been so great at is not, you know, not he in, in as much as he confines himself to certain types of models, he will venture out if he sees an opportunity that makes sense. You know, he'll do a whiplash if he thinks Chazelle is a filmmaker to bet on. He'll do it. You know, he'll do a movie like I mean, even even I would say a movie like Get Out. That's a first time filmmaker. It's mm-hmm. a first time director. You know, or or, um, or or spending more on a movie like you know Black Klansman. Again, not technically so much of a blowhouse movie, but still Jason's involved in that movie. You know, being able to say I. I being able to, to to change with the times and be reflexive, I think, is more imperative now than it's ever been before, because people are inundated with garbage every Tuesday and Friday. I mean, we have more things coming out, you know, now than I think probably in human history in terms of entertainment options. You need to, you know, you need to be working harder than ever to tell stories that people feel like they haven't seen before and that they can, you know, um, that 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 feel urgent and necessary. Yeah. You know, we're we're constantly chasing. I remember as a kid going to Blockbuster. And walking through the aisles with my terrified mother, as I would always pick off like Evil Dead Two or something. There's the movie that I wanted to rent at, at eight years old. Um, and and how do I create? Or looking in Fangoria magazine, and, and whether it was a movie like Blair Witch Two: Book of Shadows, or you know, or or uh, or, or maybe a slightly sometimes better movie. You know, seeing <laughs> those images and being like, I I can't wait to watch this. This feels amazing. You know, there's that magic that I think that um, you have to work overtime these days to reestablish that for audiences when they have so many opportunities to, to, to watch literally anything but what you're doing. Yeah, and so obviously we focus on genre movies that's horror, action, you know, thriller, sci-fi, everything that's under the blanket of genre. Mm-hmm. But every project that we approach is something that we're in love with. Something that just like, there's immediately an angle, a hook, something that we're super excited about, whether that's a supernatural horror movie set in a Hasidic community or Kevin James with a swastika on his head. Right. There's always some sort of angle of just like, we've never seen this before. And us too, as genre fans would be super excited to see this movie. Yeah. And then obviously we're going to be doing it at a very responsible budget. Yeah. And I will say, you know, we have, I generally say we only get, we only want to be getting involved at this point. And that's changed over time. I think that you evolve as a company. Um, but, but the, and as a person, you know, thank God, but I think that the, the three things that, that I try to look at. I only want to get involved in something if it's either a sequel, a big payday, or it's going to be somebody's favorite movie of the year. It's going to be something that we're totally going to get behind. And that's not to say that something can't be all three, mm-hmm. but, <laughs> but, uh, but definitely one of those three boxes is, is what we look to if we're going to get involved in something. So, you know, you have a movie like Wild Indian, which we just had at Sundance, which really doesn't fit in Dollar Bill. It's a, more of a drama than anything. It's a first-time feature filmmaker. It's got a great cast. You know, we have Michael Gray Eyes and Jesse Eisenberg and Kate Bosworth, but it's it is, and many others, but it's, um, but ultimately that was a script where we both read it and we both said, you know, this is, this, this is the type of movie that we get excited about. This is the type of filmmaker we get excited about. Let's roll the dice. Let's get involved in this, you know? So it, it, again, it's, it's keeping an open mind and understanding that like, um, everything's of the guy, nobody knows what's going to happen. The business is changing constantly and taste is changing constantly. And so, you know, you can never be too stoked. Yeah. But at the same time, having some sort of, you know, we're not looking to do uh, Western romance dance movies, right? That's not that's not what we're looking to do. And things have to make financial sense. I always say, like, I love the movie Foxcatcher, but I don't think we would make Foxcatcher. Right, right. Well, I think you touch on something really important, which is making movies that have an urgency to them, because it's a fantastic feeling that harkens me back right back to Blockbuster or my local video room, which I used to rent at where there was that anticipation for a movie. And it's rare, like psycho Gorman. I had that since they announced it was like, I <laughs> cannot fucking wait to see I that. I can't wait to tell Peter Kuplowski that he's a dear <laughs> But that urgency is, is really hard to come by. I mean, as you're working on movies at the beginning stage, are there any keys for establishing that urgency for audience that audience members, or is it something that you just, you, you, you observe whether or not it is in yourself? Like, do you green light a movie based on is the level of urgency that that movie will have for the both of you? Yeah, I, I think it's about finding things that are salacious and, and, you know, highs and lows are important. So just to use Becky as an example, Becky is a very easy time. It's diehard with 12 year right? It's yep. a, it's a, it's a genre movie that, um, that works. It's a, it's a trope that works. 
Um, and, uh, and, and, and then it was about, okay, how do we cast, how do we cast the movie in a way where all of a sudden this thing that's very, very familiar that we're very used to, um, we, we make feel, uh, you know, slightly different in a way that's immediately compelling. And so, you know, putting someone like Kevin James, who's, who's never done a, a genre movie, certainly never done a movie, as far as I know, that got an NC-17 from the NBA like we did in the <laughs> so, uh, how, that, that already, okay, that sets you apart. Making the dad go with Hale sets you apart. You know, a movie like The Vigil, The, the Vigil is a movie we've seen before, right? We were joking, we were doing James Wan meeting Marvel. You know, mm-hmm. you've done, we, we've seen haunted house movies, we've seen possession movies, we've seen movies... Even movies with people in a body, we've seen that, but we haven't seen it done like this and done in a way where you're implicitly creating imagery that does not exist in the marketplace. And you're tapping into an audience. You're going after audiences that um, that are um, that are are that that are rabid and at times underserved. So you know, use Becky as an example. We know we have the action audience, and we know we have a Kevin James audience. Mm. Kevin James people were you know prior to Becky, he never started a movie that that made less than. 40 million theatrical. That was a not a Netflix movie or something, right? And mm-hmm. as far as fair, at least not in the past 10 years or whatever. You know, and so um, so you have this actor who's associated with one kind of thing where we know we'll get a portion of his audience that's that's hopefully intrigued by that. Right. And you also have this this genre movie to fall back on, which which has its own audience. Listen, again, you know, it it, it does come down to you need to feel in yourself. Do I feel like there is something in this movie that's speaking to me, as you said, but also just like you know what? What are um, what are audiences that we know exist that are that are that aren't being serviced as much as they can be serviced? And I would even say, like, you know, you you mentioned that great thing about like, well, you know, haunted house movies. I used to joke that like so many of the movies that were coming out were like haunted house movies in the valley, right? Mm-hmm. And they were just it all felt the same. And I would always wonder, like, there is this great line that you can't lose money on a, on a horror movie. You can lose money on any movie. You can lose money on anything, right? Movies are this commodity that people do not need. Like nobody, you know, we might love movies, but so many people just don't, they're, you know, I remember Rafi and I would always joke, like you go to the theater on on, on a Saturday night and you have people pointing at posters being like, what's that? Oh, that's the new scary movie. We should see that. You know, people are, we think as fans, we have to understand that most people don't necessarily think as fans, you know? doesn't mean that they don't love movies, but their relationship to cinema is fundamentally different. So how do you speak to that audience while, we're, while, while also simultaneously speaking to, to, you know, to guys like us who, who you know, read Fangoria and, and, are, and are constantly following, following, you know, the entertainment news? And, and um, how, do you, how do you kind of satisfy your core group while not isolating kind of wider audiences that justify getting larger budgets? Yeah, yeah, and, and and something that I would add on that, that something this is something that we've developed and learned over the nine years that we've been doing this is we make at this stage in our careers we're making projects more or less that we're in love with. We love this. We need to see this. And there was a minute there where we were making movies where we were making movies for what we thought other people might like. Mm. Um, and I think that was a really important thing to learn. Is that if you're not if you're not really in love with the things that you're doing, there's no point in pursuing them because chances are it won't work and other people won't care either. Yeah. And that and that was and, and Robbie hit the nail on the head. And you know, that was I really think Becky individual were turning points for us where um where we just decided like we're not going to get involved in something unless it fits one of those three buckets. Um the other thing know. is that these days, because we have so many projects now that we're working on, thankfully, is that like if we're not super excited about something, it'll just fizzle and die out. Right. And just it, it, there's no point of wasting time on, what, on, on projects that will just end up being dead ends. Mm. Gotcha. So it is all, ultimately all about passion and making the movies that you're dying to see and that you're in love with. That's the North Star of the company, it sounds like. I think that if that's not there, it's going to be difficult for us to move forward. Again, unless it is that sequel or that payday or whatever Right, it is. right. But if it's like, let's champion this vision or this original script or whatever it is, and it takes months and months, if not years, to put a project together and get it to a point where it can get made. Those projects we're going to have to be in love with. Yeah, and that's what it, you know. Again, it comes down to it doesn't take that much less effort to make a bad movie than a good movie. Mm. So you might as well make the good movie, and the good movie tends to be more profitable and more important for you. You know, yeah. a movie like Vigil, it, it's you know, it's seventy or whatever, fifty percent in Yiddish. It, it's it's nobody you've ever heard of in the movie for the most part. Maybe when you're on you read and read a lot. But besides that, you know, and, and even then, you're probably a film fan, right? It's no no stars traditionally in the movie. It's a first time feature filmmaker, and it was immensely profitable. I mean, it was profitable out of kit, essentially. Um, mm-hmm. And that that was uh, you know that's our highest grossing movie worldwide. And so again, it's 
it, it quality matters. Audiences, if, if you make a really scary movie or a really good movie, that that it's very rare, very very rare that I see that not rewarded by the yeah by audiences. And one thing I've I have read you guys talking about is this idea of guerrilla hustling. And I feel like a lot of a lot of filmmakers, they think that their movie will be successful by virtue of its quality. If you make a good movie, people will naturally come find it. It'll naturally be successful, naturally sell. Clearly, as experienced producers, I'm sure you can attest to the fact that that is very far from the truth. Well, I don't know if that's not true, but I think that perhaps their perspective of what good is might not be true. <laughs> Because I, I, you know, again, I do stand by the fact that again, I've seen it. I've seen good movies not get the attention they deserve, but it happens very rarely. Because most of the time, if you make, you know, there is this myth that like, you know, festivals are all politics. They're not all politics. There are politics involved, as there are politics involved in everything. Yeah. But as I said, you know, uh, whether it's TIFF or it's or it's or it or, or any of the other real festivals, um, they're watching. Somebody's watching the movie that you submit, right? Now, if they don't watch it with the right if they don't watch it with the right mindset, right? Mm-hmm. What you get when you go through a, a, a source, like if, you know, what you get if you say, if like, if like we're brokering your movie for you or another company is brokering your movie for you is that we know people so we can, we can basically like contextualize the movie. But ultimately, you know, every year CAA, UTA, WME have movies rejected. If they're submitted, yep. if they're on the movie. You know, nobody's forced. It's very rare. Spike Lee maybe can, can force a movie into Sundance. Kevin Smith maybe can force a movie into Sundance. And even that, that's not forcing. That's just because, like, if you have a Kevin Smith or a Spike Lee movie, it's more likely that you'll sell tickets. And, yep. and, and it's more likely that the movie will have an audience that wants to see it. And, and more likely that people will respond to the movie just based on this history. And so I, I, I have a hard time believing that a movie is ever forced into Sundance mm-hmm. or South Park or Tim, or Tribeca, or whatever, any of those certainly can, you know, the, yeah. nobody's, no, no programmer is like taking money onto the table at a legitimate festival, I would say, to program a movie, that's not how it works, and yes, if you premiere a great movie at a top tier festival like Sundance, the chances are your movie will find an audience and get bought, that said, A, I have a hard time understanding how you can make a great movie without some form of hustle, um, because every movie is a miracle, and big, good movie, that is, uh, so, some, some movies are abominations, and two, <laughs> Two, uh, you know, it's hard to imagine how you're going to get that movie out there without some sort of guerrilla hustle at some level, right? Because ultimately, it's not just it's not just about the movie coming out in the marketplace, but somebody also needs to like aggressively let people know that the movie is out there. Because, like we like we keep saying, when you have ten thousand things coming out every Tuesday and Friday, it becomes impossible to keep track unless something announces itself violently. Yeah, um, and, and the guerrilla the guerrilla hustle never really stops. You know, it, it, oh. you don't stop doing the guerrilla hustle once you get to a certain budget. We're still doing it, you know, but we did it very uh, physically on our first movie, Contracted, which was, again, it was like a $55,000 movie. You know, JD and I were literally going to the 99 cent store and setting up the crafty. Mm-hmm. So we were doing everything from raising the money to, to buying and setting up the crafty. Um, but but yes, I, I would say that if, 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 if what you meant by your question was also just like advice for, for people putting yep. together the movies from a guerrilla perspective is is something that I that I'm constantly shocked that filmmakers who are just making their movies are not thinking about is like what is the end goal, right? Who is your movie for? And that's not necessarily who's your audience, but like what distributor do you see buying your movie? Hmm. Where do you see where do you see the movie premiering? Okay, great. Obviously everybody wants Sundance and TIFF and Khan and whatever. But if you don't get into those, what's a second option or a third option? And then back to the distributor example you look at those distributors, see what movies they're releasing. Be like, can my movie fit into this, you know, this distributor's brand? Right. You, you really have to, not necessarily the director, but it's perhaps maybe your producer has to be thinking like that. You can't just be like, I'm going to make a movie and if it's, and I hope it's good and it gets the Sundance and sells for millions of dollars. You have to be thinking a little bit more uh, intelligently and broadly than that. Yeah. You also have to think about what your hook is. You know, like when we did Contracted, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We learned how to make a movie through making that movie, but we understood right away that Contracted was a movie with an angle. It was an STD zombie movie. That hadn't been done before at that time, and that was interesting. And then obviously we kept the budget really low, and the movie, you know, it worked out. Um, but just to be thinking about all these things ahead of time as opposed to just like, you know, the movie's going to be like a John Carpenter movie, and if it's really good, we'll, we'll all do well. You, you know, you, you need more than that, especially yeah. in 2021. 
maybe in you know 10 20 years ago it was a little different yeah it's also important to understand that like your taste if you're if you're a thinking person your taste is going to change right so like we did you know we we've done movies where we thought we had something and then we later learned that we didn't and and that and that's um and and those things ultimately help make you a better filmmaker if you pay attention to them there are a lot of people who aren't, you know, you can't, I remember one of the great things I learned from working uh, for Adam Lingard and Simon Barrett as briefly as I did. I mean, I, those guys, whether you like their movies or not, they kill themselves to make good movies. They like Adam Lingard and Simon Barrett, you know, Simon has a great quote where he says, I, I hate, I hate all filmmakers in all films, but most of all, I hate myself in my own movies. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, you know, that's, that really is, you know, it, you, you have the seventies because you have that situation where Francis Coppola screened the conversation for, you know, George Lucas and Peter Bogdanovich and Steven Spielberg, and they all rip on it, right. you know, or whatever it was. Like, you need to have this experience where you you need, you know, if you look at everything you do and you see it as flawless, it's very hard to know how you're going to, you know, become a better filmmaker and and, and really get it to that level. Like, you need to really look and take take stock of your movie and say, you know, does, is this a Sundance movie? Is this a movie... Uh, you know, for, for a wide audience. And, and why am I making the movie? Because, you know, the, the idea of like, if you're making a movie for yourself, um, you have to make a movie that you'll love. Obviously, that's first and foremost. But but to make a movie for yourself, I mean, making movies cost, a, even making a low budget movie costs a tremendous amount of money and a tremendous amount of time. And so you always want to make sure, you know, if, unless you're self-financing, you, if, assuming that you're like most people and you're just raising the money to make a movie, you want to make sure you're going to give that return. You, you want to think about these things. And, and something that I see a lot that I really encourage filmmakers not to do, I mean, you can do this if you're like raising money from, you know, vulnerable people in your hometown who, who won't do the, re, the real research. But right. if you're trying to raise sophisticated equity, um, you know, even sophisticated private equity, which is already how sophisticated is that. Um, but if you're trying to do that, Never put like paranormal activity on your business plan because it, you know, that's literally, you know, that's playing the lottery. Like mm-hmm. paranormal activity happened twice. It happened with Paranormal Project and it happened again with paranormal activity. But that, that is truly the exception that makes the rule. That's, that's, that it may happen again. It probably will happen again. But the odd, you know, putting that on your, again, it's, it's like starting a restaurant and saying you're going to make, again, and this is a terrible because it's disres- perhaps disrespectful to the movie, but it's like opening a burger joint and saying this is going to be the next McDonald's. You right. know, it's not. It's that doesn't really happen. You know, that's not that's not a that's not a viable thing. But really, you know, if you are putting together a business plan and you say like, okay, you know, you're making a, a low budget, um, you're making a, a, a you know a, a low budget um, alien invasion movie, and you have movies like The Bast of Night, or you know, even you know, you just you find these movies that really do feel like comps because they shouldn't just be comps in terms of. Uh, success, they should be terms of constant in terms of your approach, right? Yeah. Like, is this a repeatable business strategy? You know, and that and that is something that again, if you're putting together a business plan, really try to find movies that, you know, putting the don't breathe on your business plan doesn't make any sense because that was a movie that Sony had from the get-go. That was always going to be a natural release. So really say, like, I'm approaching, you know, try to learn as much as you can about the business aspect. And it's hard because people always lie and like there's a lot of misinformation out there. Um, but really just try to talk to as many filmmakers as you can. Most filmmakers are accessible, you know, mm-hmm. most, maybe, you know, obviously like maybe Fede Alvarez isn't so accessible, but most, you know, a lot of filmmakers who've had movies out from, from, from independent distributors, you can reach out to them on Facebook. You can reach out to them on Twitter. If you're, if you're respectful and you're polite, a lot of people will respond to you and give you advice. And, and that's also very, very helpful. I, my, one of the way, core ways I got into the business was just hitting up people on MySpace and Facebook. And, you know, it'll be awkward sometimes, like anything, the older people who will be put off by that. But a lot of people will just be like, again, assuming you're not asking them to read your script or, or asking them for money, if you're just asking them for advice, a lot of people are happy to give advice. Makes them feel smart. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's huge. And mentors have been very pivotal for both of you guys. Could you talk about your approach to getting mentors and what mentors are meant to you? And if there are any specific, you know, pieces of advice or wisdom that you did get from your mentors, feel free to share those as well. I, uh, I, I, you know, without getting too down a rabbit hole, I, I, I read in a Fangoria magazine as a, uh, as a 13 year old that Eli Roth checked his own MySpace messages. And so I'm, I'm giving my own advice, the advice that I gave myself, which was, oh, that's my ticket into the business. I'm from mm-hmm. Long Island. I don't know anybody in entertainment. Everybody thinks I'm crazy for wanting to go into movies. Let me reach out to Eli Roth. So I MySpace Eli and he got back to me and I was like, this is my ticket into the business. And I started doing that with other filmmakers. And, and, you know, I, I spent some time with different uh, independent filmmakers, you know, kind of just shadowing them in Los Angeles uh, and I'd go out for a summer and spend time with people. And, and some of the stuff that I learned were a lot of things of what not to do. Mm. Like I think in the independent genre space, people make, you know, 
you have to look at the entertainment. You have to look at this and say, is this a career or is this a passionate hobby? Right. And, and that really is what you have to think about. Again, and I'm not trying to everybody, you know, it, there's no human, you know, it, it, again, because people don't need movies and movies are so expensive to make. You have to constantly be thinking like, is this something that you want to take seriously? And if you want to take it seriously, then you want to look at the broader picture of how it's a sustainable career. And a lot of people will go to Sitges or they'll go to Fright Fest or one of these festivals that are wonderful, that we love going to, that we dreamed of going to. And you'll have, you know, a thousand people cheering for your movie and asking for your autograph. But that doesn't necessarily translate into success, into, into, into financial viability. And that, that can be really devastating. And, and, and again, those highs stop coming if you stop making movies. Mm. And if you don't show returns, at a certain point, it becomes very difficult to keep making movies. And so, you know, really think about like, it doesn't matter if people love your movie at, 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 at you know, we've had movies at Sitges that have done uh, that, you know, that have, that have been uh, real crowd pleasers and it's been great. And, and that doesn't always necessarily, and thankfully I actually think all of those movies for the most part were financially successful. Yeah. But, but I can say a lot of the movies that play there, they, they don't even get deals. And so not just, I'm not using them as, just using them as an arbitrary example. Right. A lot of movies that you see at Sundance won't get a, a lucrative. Most movies at Sundance will lose money, right? Most movies at any festival will lose money. And so you want to be aware of that, you know, because ultimately, A, it implies what the audience appetite for what you have is. And B, it also, you know, you, you want to learn, like, I, I, one of the things that I learned from people were just, you get very myopic and you, you, you get into these small worlds where you think that all that matters is this film festival or what this reviewer says or what this filmmaker said to you. And, and it, 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 it also can be ultimately very painful because it becomes like high school where you mm-hmm. take these things so personally and you can burn relationships over it. So, you know, be level-headed, understand that most things that seem like issues in the moment aren't actually issues. If you get a bad review from somebody, that's not the end of the world. If a filmmaker, you know, if an actor yells at you on set in a hard day, that's not the end of the world. And then, mm-hmm. you know, I'll say just, um, uh, you know, in terms of mentors that we've had, we've had guys like, uh, uh, you know, I'll say, do a shout out to our dear friend, Roy Lee. You know, thank God we, we've been very fortunate that we have a, a great relationship with Roy Lee. Uh, and Roy, um, you know, is somebody who doesn't get emotionally, he doesn't let his emotions take, you know, Rafi and I can be very emotional guys. Roy is not someone who. Now, granted, he, he's been doing this a lot longer than we have. <laughs> yes. Has made, quite, has made quite a lot of money. Um, so I mean, just yes. a little bit of a different position, but it's been, it's been fascinating to just watch because he, he is our, he is our mentor of ours and we are doing quite a bit of business with him now too. Um, and just to watch how he operates and just moves from project to project within, within the industry has just been so fascinating. Cause he's just so calm, cool, collected about everything he does. And it's, and it's, and it's incredible. And like, you know, it, that's something where don't, I, again, I heard Brad Fuller say years ago, uh, in an interview, he said like, you know, he wishes he could tell himself as, as when he was first starting out, if an agent yells at you, it's, it doesn't matter. It, it ultimately doesn't matter, you right. know? Uh, and, 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 and also just that it doesn't, you know, doesn't matter how big you get people are going, you know, I remember, you know, and Jason Blumis said, you know, what's your hardest day? What's today? Monday, you know, <laughs> it, doesn't matter. it doesn't matter if you're Jason Blum spent years trying to get upgrade made with Lee Winnell, you know, that's the right, it's the creator of two massive franchises and the biggest producer in horror, arguably, or one of the biggest producers in horror. And they struggle to get that movie made because it doesn't matter. You know, the, the second you stop hustling, move to, you know, retire. I mean, that's, right. that's not, you, you need to, you need to constantly be, be doing your job and you can never expect anyone to do your job for you. Yeah. That's great. Then you run a company and you're paying to do it. Then hopefully you can expect <laughs> So can you talk us through the the founding of Boulder Light and the overall evolution of it? Like at what point did you guys feel, okay, this is we're not just producers, we now have a company. At what point did you go from or could you just overall just walk us through the the founding of the company and the overall development and where you guys are at now? Rafi, you want to? Sure, yeah. Well, well, J- JD and I, well, we started pretty young. Um, we, we, uh, I was 20, JD was 19, and we moved out to LA, and um, we were living at JD's aunt and uncle's house. Um, and we, I literally went, we, we, had, we had met the filmmaker that, that did Contracted, and I went back to New York and raised $55,000, and we made that movie for 15 days in LA in 2012, and thankfully, it came in on budget, and the movie turned out all right. And we sold it to IFC, and it did really well for them. 
and it was a huge sleeper hit on VOD and, and sold it to Netflix. And it was, a, it was like reportedly like the most streamed movie on Netflix for days following wow. the release. And the success of that movie allowed us the opportunity to keep making movies. And then the following year, we made a movie called Dementia, which was a New York Times critics pick that we sold to IFC as well. We made Contracted Phase 2, which is obviously a sequel to Contracted that IFC had pre-bought in exchange for the North American license. Uh-huh. And then that covered the budget and all of foreign was profit. At that same time, we didn't like the job that our sales agent was doing on the contracted film. So we literally said, give us the right spec and we'll do this ourselves. And we 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 booked a basement booth in the Palais and Cannes, printed out the posters, carried them on the plane because it was cheaper than shipping, and literally walked into, around the hallways of, of the Palais and Cannes for anybody who looked like an international buyer and said, give us five minutes of your time and you won't, you won't, you won't regret it. And through that, we legitimately cultivated these incredible relationships internationally. So for example, the contracted films were released by Bravo's Pictures in Hong Kong, and they had never done a horror movie. They did like The Revenant and Hacksaw Ridge, and they bought the movie, and it opened up top ten theatrically at the at the Hong Kong box office, which is obviously something we never imagined. We made this little tiny fifty thousand mm-hmm. dollars movie. Um, the success of those movies and other movies had led led to certain co financing deals we did out of a, out of a, a company in Hong Kong called uh, Making Film, which was mm-hmm. started by Pang Ho Chung, who's a really big director in China, and his wife and partner Su Bi Liang, who was from Media Asia. We hit it off with them. They financed a slate of films with uh, with us. Um, then we did another uh, co-production deal with a company called MM2 Entertainment, wearing the hat, which is the largest production and distribution company in Singapore. And they really bet on us. Uh, and, and we met with the CEO and we hit it off. And they co-financed a few of our movies and, and gave us money for, for our overhead to, to build out our office and to make a hire and and really kind of just legitimize the company a little bit more in terms of, in terms of the scope of, of what we can accomplish. Um, and then, and then, so, you know, we've done 15 movies since 2012, you know, it's, it's, it's been a process. I don't think we would have recognized ourselves three years ago and we sure as hell wouldn't have recognized ourselves nine years ago. So you're constantly changing and evolving um, to, to where you are today. But I would say, JD, what would you say? Like, when did we start feeling like we're truly running a company the past two I would say Contracted 2 was the first iteration where we, you know, we pre-sold the movie domestically with, with XYZ and, 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 and we did, we exceeded XY, we, we did the foreign rights for, for Contracted 2. And I remember uh, a foreign company that we, a company that we respect that does foreign sales told us what they thought we would do and we beat that projection, I believe. And I remember that felt really good. Like we, that paid for our first office and, and, you know, that was, and at the same time we did the, the I mean, just to give Making Film the credit, it was a fully financed. They, they fully financed us, they did movies um, uh, uh, for us. And, and that was really incredible. And, and uh, you know, that, that that was probably the first time where I felt like, oh, you know, we're, we're making uh, exponentially more money than, than we were before, uh, so to speak. And, and, uh, and, and, um, and, and we have an office now and, um, you know, and, and yeah, obviously the, the difference between not having an office and having an office, I know that sounds weird in the age of COVID, but we're big office guys, mm-hmm. um, is again, you can't compare it. Yeah, and then and then and then the next time, like Robbie said, I mean, you know, I think when I think really the a turning point was uh, was was probably around the time Pledge premiered. We started to it, things, you know, we did the vigil, we did Becky, and that that again, we were finding our voice, we were finding our perspective. You know, you you it, you, you 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 learn what works for you, and and really. Uh, that's just something we've been very grateful for. Like the mistakes we've made, I think we've been very cognizant. Uh, yeah, and, and it, just to be clear, just for the listeners, like it took six, seven years for us to get to the point where we feel much more comfortable. Like we know what we're doing. We know what we want. Mm-hmm. We know who our partners are. We know how the business works. But we, we've always really known how the business works. Another thing that's always surprised by is like there's so many people, filmmakers who like have no idea how the movie business actually works. Right. So thankfully, we've kind of like really had our footing there since the beginning of understanding the economics of film. Yeah. Um, but I'd say the past couple of years is really when we, we sort of jumped to the next level say the past two years in terms of just like getting who we need on the phone and, and, and making the movies that, again, we, we really love. Yes. And that was the real, again, the real turning point is it goes back to that. It goes back to the basics. I'll say something. Jeffrey Greenstein is a friend of ours. He's the co-president of uh, Millennium New Image, the company that makes like the Expendables and Rambo. And when we were starting to do foreign sales, he gave us great advice. He said, you know, all of this stuff, this whole business, it's simple, but it's not easy, but it's simple. And that true words I are rarely said about the business. Like, again, the two things that we've learned are basic math, basic math that we knew when we came out here is totally essential. It's as essential as you think it is. And two, um, do what you love. 
because that's ultimately what other people are going to love too. You know, the movies that we regret doing, the only movies that we regret doing, and there aren't that many of them that we've done, thank you, like, because you know, normally there were ancillary benefits, but the two movies that we regret doing probably, or two, you know, the most are the movies that we did for the wrong reasons. Like, we did them because of what we thought other people would want, mm-hmm. uh, not because we actually love them. And there were other movies, again, there were so many movies between our initial films and where we are now that we didn't fully believe in, that we did again because we thought, oh, well, this this will get into X festival or this will be, you know, this is what, what the kids want. Um, and, and that's not, you need to really think like, do I love this? Would I pay to see this in a theater? You know, right. and why is somebody waiting in line or, or, or even if they're going to watch it, why is somebody choosing to watch this over, over rewatching, you know, one of their favorite movies on Netflix or just, or, 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 or so on. Like what, yeah. what is the angle? And that is something that, that I think we really learned. Uh, you know, and it sounds, that's why we came out here. Like you have to reteach yourself. Why do I love movies? Why is this exciting to me? Why do these get me hot? You know, mm. uh, constantly try to, you know, the greatest, the reason Steven Spielberg is the, is the biggest director of all time, whether you like him or not, we happen to, but we happen to be big Spielberg fans, but, but whether, whether or not, you know, uh, Jaws is your thing, Spielberg never lost that, that, you know, when you, when you look at, a, when you watch a Spielberg movie, you feel that love you, whether it's steven spielberg or or quentin tarantino or sam raimi in their best movies they're kids you know there's this childlike innocence even in their even in their darkest moments um that that is enthralling and captivating and magical and you cannot if you want to make great stuff and if you want to make stuff that will make money you can't lose that because that that is the ultimate asset yeah i feel like that's enormous so how do people get on your radar? Not should they email you or send you a MySpace message, but what do you what do you observe in creators that make you want to pursue a project or or reach out to them? Well, Rafi's home phone number is uh, five. <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, uh, you know generally uh, generally people can hit us up through uh, 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 you know we have we're, we're, we have representation, so they can they can hit us up through our representation. Um, they can email our website. Uh, uh, we don't personally necessarily uh, uh, always check that, but but it does get checked. And if a message, I, you know, I, the message will get forwarded to me. Um, uh, you know, they can hit us up on. Uh, I'm still on Facebook. Uh, um, uh, we're on Twitter. Like the Boulder Light is on Twitter, and I'm on Twitter. Um, so you know, it, it, again, we don't generally. Uh, we're, we're not we're not always looking at, at unsolicited material, but if just somebody has tell to us why there's the, something that pisses me off so much is when I get a, a cold submission, and it's like it's as if they even don't even, they've never even researched our website. They're they're pitching us a movie that we would never make. So it's like if you're going to come at us with a cold submission, tell us why we should be reading it or looking at it. You know. <laughs> that said, that said, like we'll totally you know if, if we. I, I don't. I've never understood the idea of not take, of, of not being respectful of somebody who puts themselves out there to try to um, to try to do some great stuff. Because, like, ultimately, you know, Fred Savage told me something years ago, uh, and I know I name dropped it. Uh, I name dropped now, but I want to give him credit. He gave me great advice. He said, like, you know, most of the time when you reach out to somebody, if you're not certainly if you're not asking for money, if you're just asking for like advice or guidance or whatever. Everybody had to. Everybody had to get it paid for. Everybody has, you know, got it from somebody and, and wants to, and is happy to pay for it. And mm-hmm. granted, if you have a great pitch, if you have a great idea for a movie, or Jennifer, more importantly, if you have a great script or a great movie, um, you don't need us. Like I'm happy to, you know, you're doing me the favor if you bring me a great piece of material. Everybody wants that, yeah. you know. Uh, but but always, what I will say is, if you're going to reach out to us or any company, always think: Is this the best that I can do? Is this my best, you know? Uh, 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 I, I remember seeing, I remember um, uh, Mick Garris saying years ago in an interview, uh, not to plug another podcast, but, um, but, but, I remember, but this wasn't from when he did the podcast. This was just like when he was just a filmmaker. No, I he, love Mick's podcast. My goal is to give people something to listen to in between episodes of Postmortem. <laughs> so Mick said like that his first script that he sold was his 12th script, you know? And I know I knew a writer, extremely successful screenwriter, who sold who who sold his fifty something script. You know, I mean, you 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 don't it, you can't uh, you know just because you wrote something doesn't mean you should share it with somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, really get before you send a script of yours to a professional, you know, to a to a working professional, you read it and you give it to people who've read scripts to read. 
mm-hmm. know, because, because you need to, you want to make sure that what you're sending is not embarrassing. And again, a lot of times you'll look at something that you wrote five years ago and you'll be like, I can't believe I wrote this. Right. Understand that that's going to happen no matter how good it is. So make sure that it's not embarrassing before you send it to somebody because generally you get one shot to make, I mean, always you get one shot to make a first impression. So just make sure that you're putting your best foot forward. Yeah, it also is, I will add, that it, 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 even if your stuff is good, it's always going to be an endurance test. Mm-hmm. It's an endurance. It's a business of rejection. That's just how the business works. You're constantly making offers, trying to get into festivals, trying to get movies financed. Try, you're, trying to, you're constantly relying on other people to say yes, no matter who you are in this business. And most of the time, people say no, just because that's how life works. So it really also is an endurance test of just you just like, just moving on after every after every rejection and not not letting it get you down. That's great. Well, guys, this was a real pleasure. Thank you so much for being here. Any parting wisdom or advice for those aspiring producers and filmmakers out there? That was mine. That was yours. That was a great one. <laughs> advice: Just stay, stay hungry, stay excited. You know, uh, love this stuff. Don't take things personally. Um, don't don't you know? And and understand that, like again. When we were, like Robbie said, when we were starting foreign sales and we would joke about all the awful things people said to us as we were trying to pull buyers in and stuff, you know, it, you, you can't, don't be afraid of a little coffee in the face, but, you know, metaphorically and I guess literally, um, you know, don't, j- j- that doesn't, it doesn't ultimately matter. Like none of that stuff, you know, all, all, just, just stay positive and make sure that you're constantly reevaluating um, who you are and what you're doing. Uh, and, and, you know, Generally, you'll inevitably get better if you do that. Awesome. Thank you both again. This was fantastic. Thank you, Nick. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with JD and Raphael. Number one, urgency is imperative. You know that feeling when you hear about a project or see a trailer or read an announcement for a movie and you cannot fucking wait to see it? You ever find yourself actually wishing that they announced the project closer to the release date because of the pain you're going to have to go through having to wait for it? Those are the kinds of projects you need to make. Nowadays, with the ubiquity of streaming, audiences have an infinite cinema library at their fingertips. They need to not only be aware of your project, but they have to be extremely excited about it and dying for it to be released. As JD and Rafi mentioned, the way to do this is to create things that people haven't seen before. A compelling hook, a completely different take on a reliable trope, anything that hooks the audience. If your movie feels cliche and part of a sea of sameness and has nothing really that unique about it, you may get a decent review or the attention of a few odd audience members who stumble upon it while looking for something to watch on Saturday night, which is fine. But... The real name of the game is for your project to be so compelling and so excited that people are counting down the days for its release. A natural extension of this rule is present in the next point. Number two, if you're not in love with it, it probably won't work. It's a cliche at this point, but to make movies, you really have to love it. Making films is extremely difficult in every single stage, and one of the only ways to get through the difficulties associated with filmmaking is to absolutely love it. This is also necessary because the audience will always be able to sense your passion in the film itself. You can feel the excitement and sheer glee of filmmaking with directors like Spielberg, Tarantino, and P.T. Anderson. That's because these guys are in love with their movies, and this passion is completely infectious to audience members. If you're taking on a project as a career stepping stone or a way to make a quick buck, in all likelihood, the energy of the movie is going to be flat, and so will its ratings. Plus, to get your movie greenlit to begin with, producers need to see your enthusiasm for the project in order to invest in you. They know that the going will eventually get tough on set, and you need to have the kind of heart for the project that will enable you to push through the difficult times. There are plenty of exceptions to this rule, but as Quentin Tarantino says, if you really, really love movies with all of your heart, then you can't help but make a great movie. Your passion has to be alive and present in every frame of your movie. And if you do this right, audiences will be passionate about your movies too. Number three, ask for advice, not favors. 
This is a big lesson that JD learned early on when he reached out to Eli Roth on MySpace and got an answer back the same day. JD asked Eli for advice, and as a result, Eli became his mentor and tremendously helped guide him through the ups and downs of Hollywood and filmmaking. Having someone like this in your life is priceless. Everybody needs a Yoda, so think about how you find yours. The best way to do this is to ask people for advice, not favors. Go and get yourself an IMDb Pro account for $20 a month and send an email asking for a very specific piece of advice from someone you trust and admire, but make sure the piece of advice won't take more than 10 minutes to respond to. Also make sure it's something unique and not something that they have addressed in any previous interview. What you do not want to do is ask them to read your screenplay, listen to your pitch, or make an introduction to someone who can help get your movie made. Any mentor worth their salt gets bombarded with pitches and requests for favors all day long. If you do this, it's kryptonite and you are just like everybody else. Instead, ask for a short but sweet piece of specific advice and then take their advice and let them know what happens and begin a correspondence. Number four, nothing matters in this business. Move on. As we've discussed extensively, Hollywood is a very tough place with a lot of tough people. Everyone struggles, gets yelled at, gets rejected, gets insulted, lied to, or treated unjustly sooner or later. JD talked about getting aggressively yelled at all the time by studio executives and just shrugging it off and pushing forward because none of it really matters. As he said, don't be afraid to get a little coffee thrown in your face. And he's absolutely right. Hollywood is a walled garden and frankly, a self-filtering ecosystem. So there's going to be an equal amount of people who will test your metal in all also, people who are downright rude assholes. Who cares? Take the blows and move on. Don't let it discourage you, deject you, or slow you down in any way. Real abuse, of course, should not be tolerated. But get used to being knocked around a lot so you can develop a thick skin. Because without it, you won't make it for two minutes in this town. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. <laughs>